Ladies and gentlemen all over the world, you are tuned in to the one and the only A Difference in Thought. I'm your host, Charlie Ray, and here at A Difference in Thought, A Difference in Thought engages and processes recent events, culture, philosophy, public policy, and faith through the ancient art of truth-telling. Join the conversation and gain an alternative perspective with A Difference in Thought. This podcast is an honor and a homage of the work and mission of the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The core philosophy here is that basic arithmetic teaches us that there can be no difference without subtraction. Before uh, considering where you would like to see a difference, first consider where you are willing to take a subtraction. It's been a little bit of a while, but a lot of good things that have been going on. You are tuned into episode number 11, The Souls of White Folk, The Second Baptism, and The Heresy of White Supremacy. Now, those who are hit to the podcast, uh, we know that in episode number four, we talked about America's church or God's church and how oftentimes nationalism uh, can overtake people's uh, faith uh, or what their nation or what their society uh, instructs them can often take over their faith. And we examined the rebuke of John the Baptist to the Pharisees who were coming uh, and one being a statement of what they wanted for their nation and what they were in the state about their ethnicity. Uh, they thought they didn't have a need to repent. Uh, and John the Baptist warned them that if they do not, uh, if they are not aware of how their nationalism and how their ethnicity um, guides them, that they may have problems in the kingdom of God. It comes down to the core issue of who gets to own uh, the faith. Is there one culture that's uh, better than the other? Now, obviously, uh, as we talked about earlier as well, uh, the visions of John in, in uh, Revelation that talks about every tribe, nation, and tongue kind of before God. And why don't we not see that here uh, represented uh Definitely not so much in America uh, and with the concept of whiteness and how that kind of had troubling histories that were kind of tied in with the religion. So a lot of times people may say, hmm, Christianity, isn't that the white man's religion? Now, is there truth to that? Are there actions that have been taken to kind of move away from the uh, uh, Middle Eastern and Northern African uh roots of the uh gospel message uh when it hit the shores here was there changes and was there uh a reason for that uh and so when we're talking about the second baptism uh and so heads up guys this is definitely going to be and this is an exciting exciting heads up a reverend dr king episode so this podcast is dedicated to dr king and he was a reverend he was a doctor he was a philosopher he was an activist and so this is one that's going to really talk about the heresy of white supremacy and how when you really look at the biblical um, perversion that was made to uphold white supremacy, a lot of it doesn't hold up on its head uh, from what happens to Jesus being white. And does that, uh, you know, if Jesus is white, is he qualified to be the Messiah? Uh in what ways do sociology inform, uh, does sociology lead our theology instead of vice versa? And for those of you who are wondering, man, why did it take so long in between episodes? Well, I was, you know, I was all ready to go. I was ready to record. And then I found out that 
one of my favorite authors, the author that really has helped me understand the uh, racial landscape of America and the, what that does to you at a spiritual level, is a guy named W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, he is a he was an intellect and uh, um, one of the founders of the NAACP. He uh, was born he was born three years after um, the Emancipation Proclamation and that slavery officially ended. And so he has a book because my mom was probably like one of the most woke homeschool teachers of all time. Like <laughs> she would have me read. So when I was 12, we had this book called The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois that pretty much uh, gives examples of how uh, the American uh, racial caste system, what that does internally to a black person. On uh, things of like code switching and things such as uh, he has a thing called changing the program where uh, black people may have a certain program to do, but if a white person enters the room, there's this tension of is it okay for me to be fully black here or do I need to change the program? And so that really helped me. Uh, a lot of people ask, how can you navigate in white spaces? And so that really helped me because it really helped uh, me to kind of understand, like, due to the um, just how society values me in America, uh, how that doesn't line up to my true value and, and you know, that, you know, it's okay to, to, to be all of what your culture has made you to be. You know, of course, all cultures have uh, things that aren't as good, but it's not inherently bad. And so I found, I was, I was reading and researching a book called The Color of Christ, and the author was doing a speech talking about the color of Christ, and he was talking about, uh, you know, he was referencing uh, an unknown essay by W.E.B. Du Bois called The Souls of White Folk. Now, I knew the benefit and the um, insight that it gave me on what the racial caste system of America does to me as a black person, but I didn't know that he had written uh, an entire essay on what uh, the racial caste system of America and the, you know, white supremacy and white pre preference uh, does to the souls of white folk. And so we're going to be talking about that. Uh, we're always going to talk about like ways that uh, the Bible was twisted to uphold white supremacy. And um, and then we're gonna also going to talk about uh, the concept of the second baptism and the ivory rule. Should be interesting. Uh, but before we get to that, we are going to get to everybody's favorite topic. That's right, everybody. Do better baby. Now, <laughs> some of you might be saying, man, well, you know, a couple days ago, you probably got a whole room full of people that you could have done a do better baby for, of all these black pastors that met Trump, and one even saying that, man, you're the most pro-black <laughs> president we've had in our lifetime, and it's like, first of all, historically, that's crazy, and also, like, I don't think that's the role, uh, that is the role of, of, uh, truth tellers, and especially those who bear the truth of, the gospel. Uh, there's a book by John Fia, one of my old pro, uh, history professors. I won't say how old because, you know, I'm trying to appear to be young. Uh, it's a book called Believe Me, called The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. And he talks about how the difference between uh, actually being a prophet and being what he likes to call a court evangelical. Or he says it's, it's very common that people would have uh, kings would always want the favor of the gods or some you know, would think they are God, huh? uh, and but they would always want these spiritual representatives around them that would just kind of conform to whatever they wanted and give them a reason to kind of uh, do this, and that there were many people who were willing to do that, 
because of proximity to power instead of proximity to truth and their core beliefs. And so I was watching an interview. I, I heard of, of, of an interview, so I decided to watch it. And it was an interview with Paula White. Now, Paula White, uh, some said she shouldn't have been at the inauguration and all these other types of things. But here in this specific interview, she was talking about uh, the immigration crisis. And uh, you can listen to my perspective on that in the last episodes, um, in the last um episode where we're talking about Harvest of Empire and what goes out of our country that is maybe causing people to come in. Side note. But Paula White, she decides to visit uh, one of the uh, nicer facilities uh, and say, oh, see, there's no problems here, even though there's been, unfortunately, reports of children being molested and abused in these uh, places. Um, just a lot of trauma happening within these places. And she's like, oh, the one I went to was okay. And then she kind of goes on to, and this is the, 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 the host, uh, and it's CBN, and they've kind of been one of the places that kind of uh, pushed their nas- pushed na- nationalism in a certain political party through, through the use of faith, um, quote unquote. Uh, and so the, the host asks her, hey, Paula, so what are some scripture verses that come to mind for you? Right? He's, he's pretty much, uh, maybe it seems almost like they have this kind of lined up before the interview. Uh, and so she says, well, I've been hearing a lot of people misquoting the Bible and saying that uh, Jesus uh, was, a, was a, a, a refugee or, a, or an immigrant and he broke the laws of Egypt. And, you know, actually, if he did break the laws of Egypt or go without going through the proper procedure, he would be a sinner. And this would disqualify him from being the Messiah. Wow, wait a minute. I didn't I didn't see in all the prophecies that we had there that that was one of the that was one of the requirements. Uh now I do know one of the requirements and, and one of the goals of this administration is we talked in the last episode is making anyone who crosses the border uh criminal by using a different federal code instead of an asylum seeker. Now I know that's what the administration what the empire is saying at this time, but I didn't know that's what the Bible said, Paul. Uh and so number one, so a couple things here. When people are kind of trying to take modern times and reflect it in the scriptures, you have to understand the context of there as well. Now, I don't think there was a immigration and a, you know, visa and, you know, do all these different processes uh, back then. So one, it's not even able to equate the two. But then you also have to look and see if those were the cases, if those were instructions that were given in that particular scripture. Now, and again, we, we talked about this. We talked about this, 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 this strange call that somehow civil disobedience is, uh, people think that it's prohibited by scripture when it is not. But really, really civil disobedience is used when the earthly or the law of the empire does not reflect a heavenly uh, goal or a heavenly, um, uh, uh, a heavenly law. And that you have to disobey the earthly one in order to bring about and reflect what the earthly uh law should be. So, if you actually read Matthew 2, you see several acts of disobedience actually in this scripture. Uh, you see King Herod, uh, when Jesus is a child, demanding the wise men to tell him where the child is, uh, but, in, uh, but God divinely tells the, uh, the wise men through a dream to not tell Herod. So there you see right there. So, so uh, to say that you have to respect the wishes and wills of a, of a king, like, in order to be the Messiah, um, so it's, it's, it's pretty much saying that to obey the empire is to disobey God. That is not what is said scripturally. We talked about how Jeff Sessions tried to use Romans 13 to say that, but that's just not the case. God divinely warned them not to tell Herod. 
uh, he, he, the angel of the Lord tells Joseph um, uh, right after that that they have to go and flee to Egypt. And he doesn't say, hey, wait until you get your visa. Um, uh, no, you know, he says, stay there until not until your visa expires, but until I bring you word. Uh, and so they go there that night. Uh, it doesn't seem to show some type of custom regulation that they went through that she seems to be assuming ha was happening there. He took the child by night and he left. Uh, Herod was disappointed that he wasn't obeyed. And then he he uh, decided to kill all of the, the firstborn there. Uh, and so then he leaves Egypt and then he goes back and um, uh, and then he and that they're still the doesn't like the, the son of the person there. So then God tells him then to go to another, uh, uh, region. And so you see that it's, it's a very fluid process as far as the, the, the borders went. And these are things that God actually accepted to do. And actually like what's really, uh, bad about this is that, uh, in both times, like, and Jesus being going to Egypt and Jesus, uh, coming out of Galilee, uh, actually fulfilled scriptures, uh, scriptures that out of Egypt I have called my son. Uh, that's actually, so actually it's it's a misuse of the scripture because it actually, Paula, uh, Jesus going to Egypt uh, actually qualified him to be Messiah because he had to be called out of Egypt. So we see these things where people try and use the scriptures to be these uh, court evangelicals, as John Fia talks about in his book, because they want proximity to power. When you see the black pastors going in there and, and, and singing the praises of Donald Trump, all except for John Gray, um, singing the praises of Donald Trump, that is not historically the prophetic role or the role of those who speak truth to power, because power always wants to convince itself that it is godly or spiritual or, or you know, numb their conscience by having these court evangelicals as John Fia talks about. But uh, Moses, uh, there's an interesting story in Exodus where uh, Moses is going to Pharaoh's pool, where God sends Moses to Pharaoh's pool. Not to say that Moses, you're divine. Uh, Pharaoh had his own little court evangelical magicians that would, you know, do a cheap version of the truth to try and make him feel good as what he was doing. But Moses, you know, didn't go there to throw a praise party for Pharaoh, like some of these black pastors participated in for Donald Trump. Uh, the importance of Pharaoh's pool is that that's where he went to feel to uh, Pharaohs back then believed that if they were went to this pool, they would become divine. Uh, and so Moses, God sends Moses there to strike the water in his pool to say that you are not divine. You are not above uh, the, the, the rules and regulations and the heavenly laws that I would have you to apply to and that there will be consequences when, when you are not in right standing with who is actually God. But there are a lot of times where, like Paul White and like uh, the court evangelicals and like some of these black pastors, where the moments of our time or society or, or for proximity of power that we talked about with Micah's priest, where people will want to be closer to these places uh, of power. Uh, and uh, especially true in America when we talk about uh, white supremacy. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about um, uh, the golden rule versus what I call the ivory rule, where he says, uh, and here in America, due to the racial caste system, right, the highest, the most moral thing you can say is not that I am, you know, not that, you know, I, I, I uh, go by the golden rule or, or I follow the teachings of Jesus or some type of moral stand. The highest thing you can say in America is I'm white. 
And as long as you can say that, then the Ivy rule applies to you instead of the other rules. But he speaks about uh, truth-telling and actually speaking um, speaking truth to power instead of just being a, a, instead of being just a court evangelical. Uh, and so uh, John the Baptist, we talk, going back to John the Baptist when he was talking to the Pharisees and saying, hey, you got to be careful of how your, your, your quest for power for your nation and your quest for power for your ethnicity or, or, or your group can start to twist how you activate your theology. And so uh, there's this, this uh, framing this conversation and talking about uh, the heresy of white supremacy is how our time, how, what does the process look like when our sociology or what society teaches us or our societal value systems and as Eddie Glau Jr. talks about in his book, how the habits of society inform us, how do those habits, how do those uh, values instruct how we shape our theology uh, when really in reverse, it should be our theology should be shaping how, what, how we see and how we view and how we deal with um, uh, uh, the values of our society instead of having the syncretism where whatever us, whatever my society says is whatever the gospel says. And then when you have power uh, over institutions and power over uh, uh, places where you can then... Uh, do that, then you actually uh, your 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 sense of theology becomes something oppressive instead of instead of uh, the uh, yoke being easy or being good news. And so, due to this uh, 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 heresy of white supremacy, and so let's talk about this. So, Paula White was talking about things that would disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah. Let's start naming some real things that would disqualify from the Messiah that are actually large tenets of the heresy of white supremacy. Now. I was reading, I was watching uh, The Color of Christ, and I was watching that uh, content because, as I mentioned in a, a podcast before, a brother named O'Don Bean said, well, if, if, you know, it doesn't matter what color Jesus is, why was it changed? Why was it changed to white? Why was uh, Jesus changed to white? And how did that, how would, you know, Jesus being able to stay his original ethnicity, how would that have thwarted some of the power plays that were made? Um by uh, uh, some of the founding fathers and some of the um, uh, origins of this country. Uh, and so, for example, Jesus can't be the Messiah if he's European, because just like he was, you know, he had to be called out of Egypt and called out of Nazareth and uh, uh, born of a virgin, all these other things, uh, he also had to be of the line of David. And now, if you if you know a map, you know that... that uh, uh, David it was from Israel and was and uh, and uh, believe from the tribe of Judah actually, uh, and so you know Israel isn't in Europe. Hopefully that's not a <laughs> startling factor for you. And when you read Ma- Matthew one and, and uh, 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 when you read Matthew's account of the of the lineage of Jesus and tracing it, at no point does it go through uh, does it go through Europe. Uh, there are even people who sit outside of Israel like uh, uh, Rahab and. Uh, Ruth and all these other types of people that set outside of Israel that are country, but it's, it's not European centered. But in a power place of colonialism and in and, and, and America and all these other types of things, uh, making Jesus the central point of making Jesus white was an attempt to uh, not so much make a statement about Jesus, but to make a statement about 
whiteness. And so another another uh, so if Jesus is of the line of of is European, he cannot be of the line of David. Therefore, he cannot be the Messiah. And, and Apostle Paul often preached warnings of preaching another Christ or preaching another qualification uh, beyond that. Um, and so you see that uh, in Galatians. Now, in the book of Galatians, um, uh, Apostle Paul is warning people and saying, now typically he starts off pretty nice. Like he starts with, hey, you know, grace and peace. Uh, I'm in chains, but I'm chilling. You know, it's your boy, Paul. You know what's happening. I got Timothy right here. We chilling in the cut. You understand what I'm saying? You know, I'm glad that y'all sent some people over here. and Y'all doing some good work. I'm here about what y'all doing. Yo, good job. He normally starts off with something nice and then follows up with the critique. But here, the, the situation in Galatians is so serious because... Uh, he say he starts off by saying you are you are doing something that is cursed. Now, what is he what is he talking about? Now, Jews and Gentiles uh, uh, in 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 the and the reason why John the Baptist had to rebuke people is that Jewish people believe that the Messiah was just for them. And so uh, in the church, when uh, after Jesus appears to Paul and sends him to Gentiles and saying that, oh, it's for Jews and for Gentiles. So in the church of Galatia, the Jewish people were saying that it's not enough for Gentiles to accept Jesus and become Christian. They also have to they also have to do away with their Gentileness and and be and become Jewish. Right. And so he was saying this formula of Jesus plus something else is cursed, right? Like, Jesus is enough. If it's Jesus plus something, it's a cursed act. And so here, Jew Jewish people were shaming Gentiles and saying, well, you, you, should, you need to eat this way. You need to be circumcised. You need to go through these rules and regulations. You need to know these things that Jewish people know in order to have worth and to have value here. And Apostle Paul says, no, that's cursed. There is no, there's one, in Ephesians, he says, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But here, they were trying to make a second baptism and saying, it's not enough for you to to be Christian, it's, you also have to be Jewish, and so in the in this context, and uh, and so that's what we call the second baptism. So I'm going to show you what what that looked like historically, right here in Virginia in 1667, uh, and then we're just going to talk about a recent account as well. So when we're talking about this, is second baptism, and so this is uh, common. You see this in the gospel a lot, where uh, uh, tr Jewish people are pretty much saying, you know, this, we are the dominant culture here. Uh, uh, we have the power and the position and the knowledge and the history coming up with this. And in order to come to Jesus, you have to come through us. And so adding this extra, this second baptism and actually, uh, and so I would compare, uh, the Jewish culture, uh, there to what the white culture would be in America and Gentiles being more so what African Americans would have been in the Jim Crow South or during slavery, where it's where there's this this notion that it's not enough that you just be Christian. You also have to have this second baptism into white culture uh, and into white preference and into uh, 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 being cleansed of your history uh, of, and your, your non-white culture and be resurrected into this, you know, whiteness and this, you know, white hierarchy and, and, and culture. Um, and so in this book, Richmond's Unhealed History, if you guys haven't read it, I strongly recommend that you read it. Benjamin Campbell actually represents how this second baptism, right, kind of this, this talk kind of took place right here uh, in Virginia. Uh, and so he says uh, the use of the word 
Christian to describe a person of English descent began to create some difficulty since some colonists wanted to help their African slaves convert to Christianity. Now, that's in heavy quotes, and you can listen to episode four where I talked about um, uh, 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 the founding fathers and how they had freedom on their mind as they walked past their slaves, right, uh, in a quote-unquote Christian nation. And so he says, this prompted the legislator the legislature to enact in 1667 an act declaring that baptism of slaves did not exempt them from bondage. So far as Virginia was concerned, Christian was a description of ethnic origin rather than religious persuasion. Uh, and so they were pretty much saying, so slave owners were saying, hey, man, like, you know, uh, if someone's a Christian, don't they become our brother? Like, isn't Christ enough to update them out of this racial caste system that we've had? And because they knew how it would affect their money and, and how, how it would affect their power, they twist it to say, uh, no, nah, I mean, they can be saved, but we can still keep them in bondage, right? Um, so, uh, and you can see Apostle Paul's real, uh, real uh, answer to what does uh salvation uh due to someone's earthly status in the book of philemon where uh philemon slave ran away and lady becomes a christian and apostle paul says go accept philemon as you would accept me um i'm sorry go accept this slave as you would accept me pretty much saying upgrade upgrade due to his spirit to his to the spiritual reality of heaven Practice civic disobedience to who society says this is and accept them as you would me, who you see as a full human, as a full brother. But anyways, this is what it says. Uh, this is what the legislature says. Whereas some doubts have risen whether children that are slaves by birth and by the charity and piety of their owners made partakers of the blessed sacrament of baptism should by virtue of their baptism be made free. Pretty much is one baptism enough. Is Jesus enough? It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. That diverse master's freedom from this doubt may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity. Wow. By permitting children, those slaves or those of greater growth of capable to be admitted to that sacrament. So here right in the history of Virginia. We see this concept that we, we see this tension that we see in Galatians, where one person, where one culture is telling another culture, it's Jesus isn't enough. You have to be baptized into our culture. You see this right in the history of Richmond. And and here's the sad thing. You don't just see it in history. <laughs> you see it present day. Um, there's a very interesting book by uh, an author named Austin Channing Brown. She's a black woman. And she talks, and the book is called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And she talks about her experience in, uh, among white evangelicals. Uh, and she talks about how her most frustrating experience, and unfortunately it happens often for her, is that there is this expectation that white evangelicals expect her to be, to, not only to be white due to her name, but also to act white. Uh, as if it is a standard, and I don't want to put I don't want to put words in her mouth, so I'll go ahead and read what she says in her book. Uh, she says, "I also grew up in the late '80s and early '90s, the height of America's supposed commitment to racial colorblindness. At my Christian elementary school, we sang Jesus loves the little children.'" 
Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. In alignment with this song, white people often profess, I don't even see color. And we talk about the co- the problem of being colorblind in episode number two, the problem of uh, uh, the injustice of fragility and resilience. Uh, but I proceed. He says, um, in alignment with this song, white people often profess, I don't even see color, reassuring me that I would be safe from racism with them. And yet I learned pretty early in life that while Jesus may be cool with racial diversity, America is not. The ideology that whiteness is supreme, better, or best permeates the air we breathe. It's in our schools, in our offices, and in our country's common life. White supremacy, now listen to this, white supremacy is a tradition that must be named and a religion that must be renounced. When this work has not been done, those who live in whiteness become oppressive, whether intentional or not. I learned about whiteness up close, in its classrooms and hallways, in its offices and sanctuaries. At the same time, I was also learning about blackness, about myself, and about my faith. This is key here. She says, my story is not about condemning white people, but about rejecting the assumption, sometimes spoken, sometimes not, that white is right, closer to God, holy, chosen, the epitome of being. And so, again, she says, uh, my story is not about condemning white people, but, but, but about rejecting the assumption, sometimes spoken, sometimes not, that white is right, closer to God, holy, chosen, the epitome of being. And so what she's talking about is doing the work of, one, as the person on the receiving end, rejecting this baptism into whiteness and knowing that your culture and the way you've made God has made you is just as divine and just as uh, and bears just as much of the image of God as white culture does. But then on the other end, uh, doing the work, uh, white people doing the work of realizing that white is not right. White is not closer to God. White is not automatically holy or chosen or the epitome of being, because if you don't, it will be very oppressive. And it also probably shows that you do not know uh, the spirit of God of which you serve. And so there are some dangerous things that can happen when you do not, when your sociology is leading your theology instead of your theology causing you to reconsider uh, 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 your sociology, right? And so we talk about this here a, a lot on Romans 12, 2, that says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can recognize God's good and perfect will, right? A lot of people start, start at the back end of that. But people don't start first start realizing, where am I conformed? Where has society shaped my thinking? Where has society caused me to try and change uh, God's word and God's uh, guidelines for his church, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, um, instead of letting the guidelines, God's guidelines, change how I uh, adapt with society? Uh, and if you're feeling... Uh, if you're feeling a little low about that, I would encourage you to know that this is also something uh, that not only happened in Richmond and not only happens uh, presently, but it also happened with Jesus and his disciples. There's a story in Luke chapter nine where uh, Jesus uh, and his uh, and his disciples. Now Jesus, he knew not everybody was going to be down with what they were with what they were doing, and so he just he he just said, if someone if I send you out and someone rejects you, just shake the sand out of your sandals. 
and I'll count it towards the judgment. Pretty much saying that was all they were supposed to do, right? Now you have to understand that Samaritans probably would be the equivalent uh, of African Americans in the Jim Crow South due to uh, some uh, text in the law that, that at the time it was about Israel was not supposed to marry outside of Israel because it was taking people away, their hearts away from God. It didn't have to do with really the people involved. It had to do more so with the direction that people would uh, kind of be taken in. And so Samaritans were seen as second class citizens and kind of, you know, uh, not to talk to them. And, 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 and so society instructed people that Samaritans, we don't really care about them. This is why Jesus centrally put the Good Samaritan in the middle of uh, the story of the Good Samaritan because his response to someone who was basically asking, who can I exclude as my neighbor? Jesus knew his heart was and his social conditioning was teaching him he didn't value Samaritans. And so Jesus made him the core of the story. So back to the story in Luke 9, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, uh, G- uh, the disciples come back after going through Samaria and, you know, Samaria didn't listen. So typically you're just supposed to say, hey, shake off the sandals. God will handle it later. But no, James and John come. James and John come and they say, hey, Samaria didn't listen. Let's call down fire. Let's call down fire. Let's burn them up, right? And Jesus says, you do not know the manner of the spirit of what you serve. What Jesus was saying is saying, you failed to do the inner work of separating your sociology and your theology. And now you you think you are speaking on behalf of God, but really you're just speaking on behalf of your social conditioning. And so, uh, just as uh, sociology, uh, when especially when, you're, when your uh, society tells you or you are in a place of, of power, it has a uh, darkening effect on your soul. Uh, not only for the person that's on the bottom, right, who's a, a receiving the effects of those things, right? And we talked about that with uh, resilience and all those types of things. It also has a damaging effect on the people at the top of this power structure. When their uh, sociology perverts their theology, it, it, it uh, has an effect on their soul. And so we're going to talk about this essay, The Souls of White Folk, that W.E.B. Du Bois talks about. Uh, uh, talks about uh, very, very clearly uh, in his uh, in his in his in his essay here. And so, first of all, W. E. B. Du Bois starts off with the inner work, and he starts about his experience uh, of seeing what whiteness uh, taught him to think about himself. And he talks about uh, um, or attempted to have to him think about himself. So he talks about like this weird relationship with uh, whiteness trying to co-opt religion to to uh, have a theology that's led by society. And he talks about his 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 uh, father and his grandfather leaving leaving their church after their white uh, after the white constituents of the church said that they didn't want them to be a part of their church anymore, and then leaving and kind of starting his own. And so he he. he 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 starts off by saying, uh, especially do I believe in the Negro race and the beauty of its genius, the sweetness of its soul and its strength in that meekness, which shall yet inherit this turbulent earth. Um, uh, and so he, he talks he talks about, you know, first he had to unsubscribe in order to understand fully, like be able to see it. He had to unsubscribe from what 
whiteness said about him. Uh, and he said a way that uh, black people sustain the thoughts of whiteness, right, internally um, is, um, uh, is one, uh, believing the lie, right? And so he talks about uh, and, 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 and talks about how proud he was of his uh, grandfather that when the white Episcopalians of Trinity Parish, New Haven, showed plainly that they no longer wanted black folks as fellow Christians, he led the revolt which resulted in St. Luke's Parish. And so the first thing that we can do before, if we want to enlighten uh, some of our white brothers and sisters who are affected by this, we first have to not believe the hype ourselves. Amen? Uh, and, and so he also talks about we have to stop uh, upholding it by ignoring the effects of 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 uh, systemic racism, right? He talks about how because he was smart, he was able to convince people to to give him uh, scholarships and to actually educate him. Because back then, like people didn't educate uh, Negroes press per certain parts, and so we as, it was as he was first going through these ranks, he thought it was just because of his will and that the reason why this happened is because other black people just didn't have the right will. And so he, we, we talked about that in episode number six of whose past matters and this whole fake revolution of, of you know, it's not about uh, injustice, it's about lack of black will, but ignoring um, uh, the quote of the young lady that we said in that episode that was talking about, I wondered what my life would be if I didn't live in a society, right, a society, right, that uh, relegated me uh, as less than human, right? And saying and saying that I have will, but even with will, I still have these oppositions. And so it was when he also talked about people that study black black people that only study black people from afar and from their ivory tower and probe and make criticisms, but aren't part of the uh, of of but are not part of the community. And we talked about that in uh, our Black Panther review, if you haven't heard it, and talking about. People that, uh, you know, we have observed from the mountains, right? People that only observe from the mountains and only come when there's an exchange of power happening, but aren't a sustained part of the community. And so he's talking about, uh, he talks about uh, uh, how he had to extend, um, uh, uh, he had to realize that what America and what society told him about himself was not true, but he had to, re he had to rely on he had to rely on uh, the truth, uh, and, and for him, the truth of the gospel uh, of of really what it was. And so, here's this interesting thing that he that he um, he says: I believe in liberty for all men, the space to stretch their arms and their souls, the right to breathe and the right to vote, the freedom to choose their friends, enjoy the sunshine, and ride on the railroads, uncursed by color, thinking, dreaming, working as they will in a kingdom of beauty and love. Uh, uh, and he says. And here's an interesting thing that he says he believes in. And then we'll get into the souls of white folk. He says, I believe in the devil and his angels who wantonly work to narrow the opportunity of struggling human beings, especially if they be black, who spit in the faces of the fallen, strike them that cannot strike again, believe the worst and work to prove it, hating the image which their maker stamped on a brother's soul. So he says here, the work of the devil, right, is to have is to is to make up a line to make up a myth that causes people to believe the worst and work to prove it, right? And so that's you know, well, black on black crime, but you don't talk about 
why don't white crime or all these other types of things. But uh, and, and he says, hating the image which their maker stamped on a brother's soul. So instead of saying we are all made equally in the image of God, we all have dignity, we all have uh, the uh, uh, the ability to exercise dominion, as Lisa Sharon Harper would say, uh, it, it's hating the image of, of the devil's organism. Have you hate the image of uh the maker on your brother's soul just because the the market looks a little bit different uh and then he finally uh warns people of of this proximity of power of becoming what john fia would say a court evangelical uh and he says lest we forget like esau for and for mere meat barter their birthright in a mighty nation and so he talks about that's the way that 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 uh Black, that's the inner work that black people have to do so that they are not perpetuating, so that they are not perpetuating uh, this uh, heresy of white supremacy. Because really, remember that good or bad, uh, these things are sustained, uh, these are sustained uh, by everyday decisions. And he talks about, and this is what I like, because a lot of people talk about being woke, but just because you're woke doesn't mean you're active. And he says, uh, every every black person has to face a great decision that says, what with all my dreaming, studying, and teaching am I going to do in this fierce fight? Uh, and so he talks about there has to be a great decision where you are going to be involved in the fight, not just studying it, not just in these days, tweeting it and 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 making posts about it. What are you going to do to do the inner work to unsubscribe from white supremacy and then what are you going to do to speak truth to power uh uh as far as this and so w.e.b du bois talks about the stages of this white supremacy because he's he's saying uh and so this is what he talks about as he's peering into uh uh as he says the souls of white folk he says i know many souls that toss and whirl and pass throughout the sea of humanity, but none there are that intrigue me more than the souls of white folk. I see these souls undressed and from the back inside. I know their thoughts and they know that I know. This knowledge makes them now embarrassed, now furious. And yet as they preach and strut and shout and threaten, um, crouching as they clutch at rags of facts and fancies to hide their nakedness, they go twisting, flying by my tired eyes, and I see them ever stripped, ugly, human and he talks about how it's strange that you know people uh instead of uh uh being satisfied with being human they clothe themselves with this lie of white supremacy uh and he says it's it's kind of strange because he's like oh like this this whole theory of whiteness and this concept of whiteness is is uh fairly modern right it's something that the ancient world probably would have laughed at uh, and he says, like, we've changed all that in the world. And a sudden emotional conversion has discovered that it is white. And by that token, wonderful. Um, and so he says, listen to this. He says, this assumption that of all the hues of God, whiteness alone is inherently and obviously better than brownness or tan leads to curious acts. So what does he talk about? He talks about. First thing is it leads to white pride. He talks about. uh uh, the gazes that he recognizes as a child when he begins to recognize that white people believe this so much that they feel sorry uh, for him for not being white. And But 
doesn't even seek to ask the question. Uh, but what on earth is what on earth is whiteness that one should even desire it, right? And so he talks about, uh, and he, this is what the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny, and how he's saying that it's this belief that whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever, right? And so instead of uh, again. Uh, some of the role of the devil in this, right, as he says, or the, the, the role of the lie in this is to get one person to despise another person and to think that only they contain uh, the mark of, 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 of the creator. And therefore, you can just do whatever you want when, when you don't. And so uh, here's the question, and here's what's important. He says, what is the effect on a man or a nation when it comes passionately to believe such an extraordinary dictum as this? We're talking about the concept of whiteness and specifically white supremacy. Um, and he says, he even calls it a religion. He says, wave on wave, each with increasing violence is dashing this new religion of whiteness on the shores of our time. He says, hey, first it's funny, right? The strut of the southerner, the arrogance of the Englishman amok, right? Um, and so he talks, so, so bringing this, bringing this to, to recent terms, right? And what we just went through with our lesson, he said, hey, it starts, it starts out funny first, right? Oh yeah, they got the, you know, make America great or America first or, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. Like, oh, look at these people, right? Um, uh, and, uh, Martin Luther King talks about this where he talks about how, uh, instead, uh, of being, how poor whites, instead of actually being given, you know, a fair fighting chance, they were given the Negro to look down upon, um, and this is why James Baldwin would say, like, I'm not your Negro, and, you know, and, and, and he, James Baldwin always called, called attention to the question of the Negro had a use, right, had a purpose in society, uh, he said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the N-word, but, uh, that is an invention of the white imagination, why is that needed? Because it was to pre prevent, uh, pre uh, invent this false sense of pride or this pride based on a lie that I am superior to you. Uh, and so W.E.B. Du Bois notices that this is the first stage of how it affects the souls of white people is that it, it, it starts off with pride that starts working itself out uh, as like humor. And then the second stage, which I find interesting, is that he calls it, uh, dulled enthusiasm for helping and supporting non-white people, right? Uh, uh, and so he says, like, we we don't really want to, you know, I don't want to free the slave uh, unless it's so far as freeing his master somehow. As in, like, uh, unless it's there's a kickback for for uh, uh, for white people, I'm not interested in the business of freedom, right? Uh, uh, I'm only interested in what happens to white people. And so he even goes to, uh, he even says like, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, he even says that, uh, and this is written in 1920, by the way, he says, I look down and know that today to the millions of my people, no more, no misfortune could happen pretty much. No misfortune could happen to black people, death, pestilence, failure or defeat that would not make the hearts of millions of their fellows beat with fierce, vindictive joy, right? Do you doubt? He says, ask your own soul, what would it say if the next census were to report that half of black America was dead and the other half dying? Where's the misfortune? Is it only mine? Am I in my blackness, the sole sufferer? Uh, and so what he's saying is this dulled enthusiasm and this kind of this lack of care of what happens to black people is what leads to the sentiment of uh, having to say black lives matter is because people don't 
care as long as it's not non-white people. And he says education is at the core of this, right? Um, he says when people, uh, when people only learn of what uh, white people have done, when people only learn of the, the virtues and the thoughts and the dreams and the contributions to society that white people have made, then just by, and, and by omission, they do not learn of anything that black people have done, then they be, start to begin to think that uh, uh, the world was formed and, and only blessed by whiteness and that there were no contributions made to black people. So then black people seem to become the freeloader, the people that are riding on the waves of white ingenuity instead of equal contributors. Uh, um, but when history uh, does not give people uh, the means of understanding that, then you can kind of get into this dulled enthusiasm. And from that dulled enthusiasm then comes violence and harm uh, to non-white people. Um, and then he gets into what I call the ivory rule. But before we get to that, I want to take you on something called uh, A Difference in Resistance, which is something that we do here on the show. And here in A Difference in, a difference in Resistance, we uh, I, I highlight people in the Richmond community that are finding ways of resisting uh, the narrative of the human hierarchy, uh, the false human hierarchy that Richmond kind of said about this white supremacy. And so I ran into a brother today. Now, I, now uh, today uh, was a bit of news for the city because the Robert E. Lee statue was vandalized and someone wrote BLM on there. Now, it could mean Black Lives Matter. It could mean someone framing them to make it seem like it was that. But it was a moment in history where you got to see uh, this this process here, where there's been a dulled uh, enthusiasm for the contributors to uh, to the black contributors of Richmond and what they wanted, uh, and it's only been this one narrative concentrating around this around this monument of who gets lifted up, who gets celebrated, who gets neglected. And I got to talk to a brother named uh, Brian uh, from East End Cemetery, and. It's interesting to hear what his uh, contribution to the revolution is. And so here today, uh, we're going to hear it right now, a difference in resistance. And when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, the effect of white supremacy on the souls of white folks. And then also, what are some ways that we can separate our sociology out from our theology and get back on the right track? It's Charlie Ray. I'll be back after a difference in resistance. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Charlie Ray with A Difference in Thought. We're on the scene um, at the Lee Monument where someone has painted uh, Black Lives Matter and threw it looks like threw red paint all over the monument. I'm here with Brian uh, Palmer, a friend of East End Cemetery, and we're going to be talking about um, A Difference in Resistance and Honor as Resistance and his work with uh, Friends of East End Cemetery. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you guys do at Friends of East End? Well, it's... It's strange and interesting that I'm speaking to you here right. because this is a cemetery cleanup day. I left my wife mm. there to do the cleanup so that I could see and document what's going on here. Someone has splashed some kind of terracotta-colored paint and written mm. the letters BLM on the base of the Robert E. Lee statue. So mm. I'm actually doing a story on Confederate monuments. Mm. And the conversation that I always want to have yeah. is in the context of our history. Right. How did they get here? Right. So... They got here 
all of these monuments through an anti-democratic Jim Crow process. Mm. So, for example, John Mitchell Jr., who's buried at Evergreen Cemetery, mm. was a city councilman. He was a city councilman and uh, a newspaper editor. He voted against funds for this statue. An African-American man mm. had the courage to vote against funding for this, and he wrote about it in his newspaper mm. because it was spending money on what he thought was a treasonous and seditious movement, mm. the Confederacy. Yeah. So that's the context. Yeah. We need to know more about people like John Mitchell Jr., yeah. African-American man, born property, mm. born a slave in 1863, mm. and we need to know more about the people buried at East End Cemetery. Right. Uh, Rosa Bowser, mm. pioneering educator. Um, Richard Tansel, mm. a doctor. Both of them were born into slavery. They were mm. born property, mm. and they became some of the most important Richmonders. Wow. Now, we have to say black Richmonders right. because our history is still segregated. Mm. Wow. Rosa Bowser, Richard Tansel, H.F. Jonathan, Cora Jonathan, all these people buried at these neglected cemeteries are as important as anybody on this avenue. Mm. So we can't understand what to do about this avenue until mm. we understand our entire history. Right. Until we look at the process that put these monuments here. Right. Taxpayer funding right. went to put these things here precisely at the moment when the vote was being stripped from African-American males. Mm. Right. So the 15th Amendment was being pared away and pared away and pared away. So by 1902, more than 90% of black men couldn't vote. Mm. So how can you... How can you elect the people who are going to stand up against public expenditure for these sort of things? Wow. Against public expenditure to subsidize Confederate graves when there's nothing mm. going to the graves of the people the Confederates enslaved. Wow. This is not about anger. This is about opportunity. Right. We have an opportunity now right. both to discover that history right. and to do the right thing. Mm. The right thing is simply to look at the evidence, yeah. to look at the history, mm. and put the myth aside. Yeah. Look at the history. That's when we can have a conversation. Right. But we're at a point now where I believe that until we can convince, compel both decision makers and regular people to mm -hmm. confront the evidence of the past, right. the power of African American resistance mm -hmm. and the power of the forces that fought that resistance. We have to look at that. We have to know people's names. Yeah. We have to know Carter Glass. We have to know John Mitchell Jr. We have to know all of these people mm. who contended for power and as African Americans, as far as African Americans are concerned, who contended for the right simply to be first class citizens. Mm. Yeah. That to me is a tremendous opportunity. And I think specifically to East End Cemetery, mm. I remember the first maybe year and a half that I went out there you know, I'd do the work, I'd, you know, sweat, I'd hurt my back. And I'd go home sometimes feeling overwhelmed mm. because I was seeing the tragedy. I was yeah. seeing, uh, the neglect. How could people let this happen? Right. And there is neglect. There is no question about that. But something flipped when I realized there's this tremendous potential opportunity and it's all here. Yeah. Every headstone we recover mm. is a text in this chapter of history that's been nearly erased, but not entirely mm. erased. Yeah. Every single headstone allows you to tell the story about African-American Richmond and Richmond and our nation mm. at a particular period of time. Mm. How amazing is that? Yeah. It's for yeah. us, though, to change people's perceptions so they don't get locked in this, oh my God, it's so tragic, and how could people let that happen? Right. 
first know the history, then let's do the work. Right. Absolutely. How do you, how do you feel the statements in the work, the statements today, and what's how it's connected to you as far as some people in as you say our history is segregated, where some people are lifted up on monuments and some are just buried under and uh the statements of who matters do you think these who gets lifted up is a way of educating uh people on who matters and who doesn't so i'm 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 here today well i was gonna cop out and say i'm here as a journalist Uh and i am but i'm 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 a human first uh human african-american i hope a thinking person right and when i see this type of expression Mm -hmm. I think that someone has taken um, taken weapons, in a sense, into their own hands yeah. to make a statement on public property. Right. Now, is that a democratic or anti-democratic action? Mm. I'm not quite sure. I would say right. that given the history of this thing, mm-hmm. given the history of how it was placed here right. through anti-democratic action, actions and actual oppression of African Americans, Hmm. I can't pass judgment. Hmm. I think this is a long conversation that we need to have. Do I think that this is lifting up? No, I don't. I think lifting up is someone courageously going to the cemetery and spending five hours there and discovering five graves and notifying or posting that information on find a grave or on a blog right. and reuniting the 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 hmm. uh, the descendants yeah. with their ancestors. Yeah. That's lifting up. Yeah. Absolutely. This is something different. Right. And it's not the kind of work I want to be engaged in. Right. But at this moment, I'm not going to judge it. Right. Um, and I know that that may seem like a cop out, but frankly knowing the history right. of the oppressive movements that put it there, I can't. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I just got a, uh, a bottle of water uh-huh. from uh, Officer Josh Duncan yeah. of the Capitol Police, a former archaeologist who has been a consummate professional and a friendly professional out here. Yeah. Uh, even as people have been shouting nasty things, he's, yeah. he's uh, uh, stayed, stayed human and good. So yeah. that is lifting up everything we're doing here. Absolutely. That to me is it's beautiful beautiful thank you well thank you for your work and i i i was i was out there i think it was maybe two saturdays ago seeing what you all were doing and it 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 was i i felt like i was i was for the small part that i was in uh helping to almost almost a work of justice almost like uh lifting them up to 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 a to a city that maybe has relegated them to not as a core part of history but joining that process and the work that you guys do i really I really admire and uh, hope to get out there some more Saturdays as well. Let me just stop you and say that there is no small part. Okay. Because your work there and your work here and your work talking to people is a catalyst mm. for more to get involved. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a way for more information to get disseminated into different, different pockets, different communities. Yeah. That, to me, is powerful. I mean, yeah. we have supporters of ours who people in their 70s and 80s who physically can't come out yeah but they they talk about us at church Mm. they they support us in our struggles yeah and they're just wonderful supporters so they're different kinds of support yeah and to have west end out there in force and to have you be part of that team yeah that means that 
you, you all had a hundred people plus out there. Yeah. yeah. How powerful is that? Yeah. For a hundred plus people to recognize that this place matters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's not small. Right. Your part isn't small. The larger collective contribution of your church is not small. Right. Because it bears fruit. Right. And it's the fruit we need. Right. We need people to stop and to be able to connect to these places in a human way. Yeah. In, as you said, lifting up the narrative of the place. You're now part of the narrative of this place. Yeah. And I take that... I take that serious as a heart attack. I mean, Wonderful. In, in a good way. A good. Can you have a good? No, you can't have yeah. a good heart attack. <laughs> serious as a hug. I got about? you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, could you uh, just let our listeners know uh, where they can get more involved with what you're doing? And Absolutely. Um, you can uh, find us at uh, friendsofeastend.com. You can follow us on Instagram at friendsofeastend. And my uh, photographs are at BXPNYC. That's Bravo, X-Ray, Papa, November, Yankee, Charlie <laughs> on Instagram. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. I really it was appreciate a pleasure. your perspective. It was a pleasure. And thank you. This is Charlie with a difference in resistance for a difference in thought. Thank you for listening. And there you have it. Brian from Friends of East End. Uh, really, really positive brother. I really enjoyed uh talking to him and just reminding us that there are different ways to resist you don't have to you know throw paint on a statue there are ways to uh you know how even honoring uh those who have been cast off by the city uh and and almost attempted to be erased out of history using you know something like going and taking a couple of hours at east uh at the cemetery to 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 to, to clean up can be revolution, can be resistance. And it was just really beautiful just hearing him talking about putting the myth aside, looking at the history, and then having the conversation, and then looking at the history and doing the work. And, you know, this is this was exactly what um, W.E.B. Du Bois warned about, how this general lack of enthusiasm for uh, even, like, learning history uh, beyond this. Um uh, he says, uh, even that the title to the universe claimed by white folk is faulty. Um, he says, but how easy then by emphasis and omission to make children believe that every great soul the world ever saw was a white man's soul, that every great thought the world ever knew was a white man's thought, that every great deed the world ever did was a white man's uh, deed. Um, and he talks about like the omission of education and how... Um, you know, a lot of that is sustained by who we teach people about and who we don't and who we lift up and versus who we neglect to a cemetery that's overgrown. And, you know, um, and then he, he talks about uh, from that point of pride and miseducation, W.E.B. Du Bois then talks about that here is where the comedy, like the funnier versions in uh, places of, of, of whiteness thus turns to tragedy. Uh, and he says, like, the first, it starts off unconsciously, right? Again, like, your sociology and society, your habits forming how you view people. Um, uh, and then the, uh, the dangerous part is this burning desire to spread the gift of whiteness abroad, right? Uh, as the obligation of nobility to the unknoble, right? Um, and he says uh, two parts of this that are dangerous. The 
real possession of the hair, just meaning believing that everything belongs to whiteness, and then uh, and then expecting people to only respond humbly to it. <laughs> so he talks about, and this is where he, where it turns violent, right? So he says, so as long as humble black folk are you know thankful, and you know as long as they receive charity uh, from uh, generous whites, there is much mental peace and moral satisfaction. But when the black man begins to dispute the white man's title, uh, saying that, you know, it's not true that you alone can reign, right? Um, and certain alleged uh, bequests for, you know, wage and position, for authority, for training. And when the attitude toward charity is anger rather than, uh, rather than uh, humble joy. Uh, but when the black man does, uh, uh, insists on their human right, uh, 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 then the spell is suddenly broken and the philanthropist, the white philanthropist is ready to believe that Negroes are impudent, that the South is right, and that, you know. Uh, and so he is, uh, he said, and after this, the descent to hell is easy. And so he talks about when you have this, and so framing it like this, right? He's talking about what does whiteness inform people of European descent to think about themselves? What does white inform people of European descent to think of darker-skinned people and, uh, you know, how does that mislead their theology? And then what does it teach white people to expect? And so I was listening to a speech and a, a foreman, this young lady um, does a lot of uh, uh, peace-building work, and so she was talking about there's a difference between charity and justice. Charity is sharing crumbs from the table, but justice is preparing an equal seat at the table. And so he's saying whiteness in this power structure, right? Saying that they have no problem with charity because charity doesn't change the power structure. But when black people are saying, nah, I'm not just going to say thank you for uh, the, the crumbs. I'm going to say, why have you been keeping me from the table? That's when whiteness turns violent. And that's when, as, as Brian was sharing, you know, uh, when, when uh, 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 with uh, uh, John Mitchell Jr. is coming in and, and saying, no, uh, we're not going to spend a bunch of money on this, perpetuating this white supremacy through the Confederacy and how he was resisted against. And, uh, um, you know, uh, that, that, is, that is the common reaction. And this is where the whiteness turns dangerous. And... Uh, and then it's 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 uh, he talks about uh, uh, this this uh, upheld belief that God ordained white people alone to have power, uh, and that the and that, and that also comes with the right to steal from, abuse, and exploit dark skinned people. Um, and so it's like this thought that dark people uh, that black people are not to be heard or empowered; they are to be grateful. Or demonized only, and so you hear this a lot when when Trump's saying, you know, Colin Kaepernick is ungrateful, or these football players are ungrateful, and uh, demonizing Don Lemon and demonizing LeBron James and uh, demonizing uh, uh, Maxine Waters and, and all these other types of people who are resisting that that is the, if that is when an expectation of gratitude from Black people uh, in response to their pleas for equity and equality is a sign of the working of this whiteness that is uh, 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 darkening the souls of, of, of white people. We're not using darkening as a, as a negative sense. I probably shouldn't phrase it like that. But as a way of perverting, uh, uh, it perverts the white soul. Uh, 
And so it talks, and, and, it, and it says that, uh, and here's another part that he talks about, and then we'll come to a close. He talks about this iron rule, but I like to call it the ivory rule, where he's basically saying that, and eventually once you are, are sipping this Kool-Aid and thinking that God has made you, uh, uh, has made white people alone to have power, then uh, it almost makes whiteness almost become close to holiness, or close to uh, divinity. And as an outworking of that, uh, uh, you think that the, he says the highest moral statement in America is not to say that I am following the golden rule or some biblical principle. The highest uh, moral statement under this uh, uh, perversion of the soul is to say that I'm white. And he says, um, and he says, uh, he he brings up a very good point. He says. Uh, 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 is this not the record of present America? Are we not coming more and more day by day to making the statement, I am white, the one fundamental tenet of our practical morality? Only when this basic iron rule is involved is our defense of right nation, of right nationwide and prompt. And so he talks about like, your murder rates may be up, theft may be up, prostitution, whatever you name it among black people, among white people, right? It's okay because they can still hold on to this ivory rule and say that, oh, but I'm white, so it's okay, right? But let the murderer be black or the thief brown or the violator of womanhood have a drop of Negro blood. And then the righteousness of the indignation sweeps the world. Um, and we all know that it was blackness that was condemned and not the crime. So people talk about this double standard. You hear a lot in the news when people say like, man, if Obama had a mistress like Trump had or if or if Obama paid off a porn star, if Obama, you know, was uh, uh, berating people and doing all these types of things, uh, he, he would get this, um, he would get this uh, double standard, right? And so he was saying, it, no, it's not the actions that are being judged. It is the non-whiteness that is being judged. It is, it is the main, uh, the, the, the worst thing about you. And we talked about this earlier where, uh, uh, in episode number three, where it says like, uh, the racial caste system says the best thing uh, about a white person is the fact that they're white. And the worst thing about a black person is that they are not white. Uh, and so he talks about this being perpetuated. And then he, 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 he even grieves about uh, how uh, this thinking then, since whiteness is divinity, is it, per, per, it is perpetuated by religion. Um, and then he says, uh, a nation's religion is its life, and as such... White Christianity is a measurable failure. So here he even documents it as a separate form of uh, uh, religion. Um, and he talks, he says, uh, the number of white individuals who are practicing with even a reasonable approximation of the democracy and selfishness of Jesus Christ is so small and unimportant uh, as to be fit subject for, for, for a joke, he pretty much is saying. Uh, and even the foreign mission work, the extraordinary self-deception of white Religion is epitomized. Uh, he says that the white world sends five million dollars worth of missionary propaganda to Africa each year, and in the same twelve month, adds twenty five million dollars worth of the vilest gin manufactured. Right, um, and so he 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 talks about this. He talks about conquest sugared with uh, religion, um, uh, and he talks about that really the world war was uh, more so about 
which color of people is uh, a white people fighting over the right to exploit brown countries, saying which which country is going to come out as the head predator uh, to to go and to you know spread colonialization and all of these other types of things. Um, and so what he basically is saying is that it is a form of sociology that warps the theology so much that at the end of it, you come away looking very, very far away from the image of Jesus. Uh, and so what, what, what he's saying, um, and he, and he, he says, uh, that even the missionary believes that darker peoples are dark in mind as well as in body of dark, uncertain, and imperfect descent of frailer, cheaper stuff, that they're cowards, uh, that they have no feelings, aspirations, that they're fools, illogical idiots, half devil and half child. Uh, and his deepest grief that, you know, it's even the missionaries believed this. And so uh, I can't go through, through uh, all that he says. Uh, but he talks about, he later then goes in to, to talk about uh, the exploitativeness of when people believe it, then they believe they can exploit anything they want, and that uh, uh, then the God becomes profit, where as long as it's profiting a white person, it doesn't matter what happens to black people. So, you know, it doesn't matter how much, you know, uh, who's slaving to put together your iPhone, as long as it, you know, it's it's a <laughs> supporting... Uh, the, the the booker causing money for the for the white institution that it's it's run by it doesn't matter and so he's talking about how these work out in, in life but how that 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 claim for divinity is actually so much against what true Christianity is about and he sees that you're you're believing this second baptism and being like James and John where you find people expendable uh, and believe that you can then exploit or do violence in the name of God, that it's a disconnection from the spirit that you actually are called to, just as Jesus said. And the ways to combat that, as he said, is it has to come to, uh, as he said, pointing to feet of clay, as he says, and saying, and saying that you're wrong. When people are saying that I am, that when a society is telling white brothers and sisters that they are God, that they are uh, supreme, that they are better than others. It is the job of the truth teller to say that you are not living according to the truth of the gospel. And you're not living according to reality. And we talked about this as a truth telling is holding the mirror to someone. And so we're going to close out and talking about a story in the Bible of uh, and in Galatians continuing this, this thing of the second baptism where Apostle Paul says, no, that's cursed thinking. We're not going to have Gentiles have a second baptism in the Jewishness. And so here in the American context, we're not going to have non-white people have a baptism into Jewishness because of who's used colonialism disguised as religion uh, to gain power. Um, uh, and so Apostle Peter and even Barnabas were led astray. And in the same book of Galatians, uh, Apostle Paul saw that Peter, though he had get, had a divine vision from God, you know, uh, and even Barnabas, right, they were ascribing to the second baptism because of whatever, proximity to power, right? And Apostle Paul had to tell them, you're not living according to the truth of the gospel. And so we're going to talk about calling out versus calling in. So how do, how do we deal with and, and how can we help each other uh, to fight against the inward and the outward effects of this uh, heresy of whiteness, right? Uh, 
You have to do what Apostle Paul says. We have to speak the truth in love. It's not about calling people out. It's about calling people into proper fellowship. Proper fellowship with God. Proper fellowship with the truth of the gospel. And proper fellowship with fellow believers. If you are describe, if you are requiring people to go into this second baptism of your culture, right, or of your nationality, or 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 of the values of your society, it's it's antithetical to the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father who is over all, in all, and through all. That Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians four, and you have to rebuke that. But here's the beauty: well, after Apostle Paul rebukes Peter. Uh, and calls him back into proper fellowship. Uh, you see, in first, uh, in first, in first Peter two, uh, uh, which is actually written to the church of Galatia, where Apostle Peter was distancing himself from Gentiles when uh, Jewish people would come into the room, even though he had was mentally preaching the gospel, he was not practicing it. He goes back and reads uh, and and calls them, as some people know uh, know this verse, you're a holy nation, a holy priest, a royal nation and a holy priesthood, right? Um, and 1 Peter 2, 5. Some background on that. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. This is uh, uh, when God was calling Israel um, uh, and about to give them the Ten Commandments. He was, he was saying that, I have favored you above all nations and that you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And it was applied to Israel only. And here, after after being rebuked and being told that, hey, man, you are letting your sociology corrupt your theology. You're not living according to the, corrupt, to the truth of the gospel. Peter repents and he writes in First Peter, which is also written to the church of Galatia much later. He, sa- he says that this thing that was only that my society taught me was only reserved for my culture and my ethnicity and my nation. I'm returning to the truth of the gospel. I'm returning to proper fellowship and saying this extends to you too. So the point of this podcast is not for you to feel bad and say, oh man, I, I've been I've been believing the hype and drinking the Kool-Aid. The thing is to say, if you are practicing the second baptism or the ivory rule or saying that uh, you have a double standard for people who are white versus people that are not, or you are calling or you are looking at non-white culture and saying it's not acceptable in my church or in my institution or in my friend group or my family or as the NIMBYs mindset that we talked about two episodes ago. Um, if you're practicing that, that it is cursed. That is not the gospel. It is it, that that Jesus is enough. You cannot call people to the second baptism uh, because uh, God did not just give white people the uh, ability to exercise dominion. God does not approve exploitation of people, no matter what your society uh, speaks to you. And it is, and as W. E. B. Du Bois would say, it is troubling. Uh, and it is uh, will have a, uh, a detrimental effect on your soul, not just the souls of the people that you perpetuate this to, but on your soul. It will cause you to uh, not even be close to uh, 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 perpetuating uh, uh, the type of truth you claim to believe. And as Dr. Martin Luther King would say, you know, it is it is not it is going against the guidelines of the church. And as Jesus would say, you do not know the spirit of which you are operating in. And so I'm encouraging you all as listening to this and, you know, definitely read this for yourself. It's so much that, you know, I only have a little bit of time that I can fit into this too, but I, I, I would encourage us 
to do the work that Brother Brian was telling us about and the difference in resistance, to put the myth aside, put the myth aside of white supremacy, put the myth aside of this white Jesus and this, this, that, uh, the center of the world or, or, or uh, even of the gospel is centered around whiteness. Put the myth aside. Look at the history. Have the tough conversations and then do the work. Do the inner work and do the outer work to correct it. Well, thank you for listening. This has been episode number 11 of A Difference in Thought, The Souls of White Folk, The Second Baptism and the Heresy of White Supremacy. I'm your host, Charlie Ray. Uh, I know this was a long episode, but it was a lot to do. Are you speaking truth to power, or are you just being a courtside evangelical, as John Fia would say, uh, just compromising your faith for proximity to power? And do the soul search and saying, hey, is my, is, are the values of my society shaping how I view God and shaping how I live out my faith? Or is, a way, or is my faith or have I done the inner work of making sure I have the proper lenses when I'm viewing my faith so that it can change the lenses of how I view society? That's inner work for all of us to do. For white folk, black folk, brown folk, everybody. There is that tendency and that pride of saying that I'm better than my neighbor instead of humbling yourself, doing the work, putting the myth aside, uh, and doing the work, as Brother Brian told us to do. Well, this has been episode number 11. Um, if you have any comments or thoughts, be sure to email me at a difference in thought at gmail.com. Um, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Charlie Ray. I love you. I love you. That's why I'm here. Peace.